This morning we continue this series in the book of 2 Samuel as we've been tracking what is happening in the kingdom of Israel. And of course this falls at a time when there's turmoil within the kingdom of Israel as there's this transition from one throne to another, uh, from one house uh, to another house as to who will be the rulers. Uh, if we to try and work out where this falls in church history, in the Israelite history. Um, we firstly, of course, start in Genesis with Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, you eventually get Abraham, who is the first of the great patriarchs. Uh, from him, you get his grandson, Israel, also known as Jacob. And from him, you get the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel end up in Egypt and under a pharaoh who does not like them at all, tries to murder many of them, and also enslave them. They are then brought out of Egypt under the leadership of a man called Moses. Moses uh, has them in the desert for 40 years, and then under the leadership of Joshua, they come into the Promised Land. They have a series of judges looking after them, and the last of those judges is Samuel, uh, and that is who is at the beginning of the book of Samuel. And Samuel then is given the task of anointing the first king of Israel. That king of Israel is Saul. But Saul turns away from the Lord. He does not follow God's commands. And so God then orders Samuel to anoint another king of Israel, and that is David. Saul then dies in battle against the Philistines. And now we have this tension in the book of 2 Samuel at the beginning here, where you've got a descendant of Saul, his son Ishbosheth, on the throne, and you've got David. And we've been watching the tension, the battle that's been happening between these two houses over who is going to reign over all of Israel. And so we've been watching this civil war that's been taking place, and we've started to see the ending of this civil war. Uh, this civil war is very important because whoever takes over the throne will then, of course, their children will reign. And we understand that from David, we eventually get the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is the establishment of G David's throne and therefore Christ's throne. So this is not of secondary importance to us. It's of primary importance ultimately if we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've been seeing the ending of the civil war. Uh, it has come about because Ishbosheth quarrelled with his commander. His commander was named Abner, and Abner was the one who put Ishbosheth on the throne to begin with. He made him king. But then they had a falling out, and therefore Abner went to David and said, I will bring all of Israel under you. I will bring all of Israel to you as your king, as, and have you as their king. David accepts this offer, but his commander, Joab, is not happy. And last week we saw that Joab murdered Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army. And how did David respond? Well, we saw last week that David mourned for Abner and condemned Joab for his wicked work. But then we come to chapter 4, and we're going to see how Israel responds to the fact that Abner has been murdered by Joab, that the, the commander of Ishbosheth's army has been murdered by Joab, the commander of David's army. How does Israel respond to the news that the commander of their army has been murdered? Well, we read in verse 1 that they are alarmed. Verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, that's the king of Israel, heard that Abner, that's his commander, had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Another way you could translate that is they all became absolutely terrified. They are quite shocked at this news. Why? Because their defender, their mighty man, is gone. He is dead. And why else? Well, they probably don't know all the details as to how Abner died. 
We have the abundance of information that comes very quickly to us these days, but in those days, news travelled slowly and details were often confused and not adequate to understand what exactly had happened. And so what would they be thinking? They would be thinking that David killed Abner, that their commander went to Hebron, met with David, and that David somehow put to death their commander. And so what is David going to do next? He's going to be coming for them that they've lost their general and now David is going to be coming for them. They may not know the great details about Joab killing Abner without David's permission. They may not know that David is favourable to them. Instead, they're quite concerned that David would be unfavourable to them. And why else might they be afraid? Well, they would be concerned that they don't know who is going to replace Abner. Who is going to replace Abner? They wouldn't be so terrified if they had another general that could take over the army immediately. Another strong, mighty man who has great military experience. We've got to remember, Abner was Saul's commander before he was Saul's son's commander, before he was Ishbosheth's commander. So he's great, got great military experience. And so what do we then understand? We understand that they are concerned that who is going to look after the army now? Could Ishbosheth rise to the challenge? He was put on the throne by Abner, but could he now be the one who goes out into battle and defends Israel? No. When we read verse 1, what do we read? When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. Literally in Hebrew, it means his hand dropped. He became completely weak. He was basically collapsing before this news that came that Abner had died. And so we understand that Ishbosheth really is only king in name. We've seen that as we've been looking through this, that Abner put him on the throne, Abner kept him on the throne, and Abner said, I will take the kingdom and give it to somebody else if I so desire. Ishbosheth is not going to be the solution to Israel's terror. But maybe there's somebody else that can take over the leadership of Israel, and be their king who goes out into battle for them, which is what they desired from Samuel many years ago, and he gave them Saul. Maybe there's another descendant of Saul. Maybe there's someone else in the house of Saul that could help them out. Well, yes, there is someone else in the house of Saul. There is another descendant. Saul's sons did die in battle that day with Saul, but Ishbosheth did not, and so he became king. But there was a son of Jonathan, a grandson of Saul, who was still in existence. Who is he? is Mephibosheth. And what do we know about Mephibosheth, though? Well, as we might be thinking, well, who's going to lead Israel? The narrator gives us a little bit of a background on Mephibosheth. Verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4, we read, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. There is another person in the house of Saul of royal blood, a man. But what about this man? Will he lead them into battle? No, he will not, because he is lame in both feet. His feet are lame. So therefore, he cannot really defend himself if someone comes to attack him. And therefore, he cannot really defend Israel, can he? If he can't defend himself, how will he defend Israel? And so Israel is terrified because they do not know who is going to look after them now, who is going to be their defender. And so what then does that lead two people to do in Israel? It leads them to murder Ishbosheth. And we read that in verse 5. 
Now Rechab and Banah, the sons of Rimon, the Berathites, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banah slipped away. What do two men do in the light of fear of man, fear of David coming with his army? They commit murder. They murder the king. They commit that ultimate treason of murdering the king. Why would they do this, such a terrible thing? Well, it's because if David's enemy is removed, if Mephibosheth, uh, sorry, Ishbosheth is removed, what does that mean? David can be king of Israel. There is no rival king anymore. There is no civil war because there's no division between the nation. And life will be better for everyone. Life will be better for everyone, and particularly for David and his people. And we read that in verse 8. They come in Rechab and Banagh, they come in verse 8, and it says, They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. They're saying to David, You can now be king, and life will be better for the people of Israel. We can all unite under you. You can now be the king. And of course, life would be better for them too. They would have been afraid. They were leaders of Ishbosheth's raiding bands. And so if David was to come with his army against the kingdom of Ishbosheth, they would be some of the first people to go. But now they will come to David, they bring the head of Ishbosheth, and they hope to get rewarded. Maybe monetary reward, maybe positions in David's army as good men of courage who he can rely upon to defend his kingdom. And so these men come and they murder their king so that life will be better for them and life will be better for others. And also, why else did they murder Ishbosheth? They think they're doing the Lord's work. We read that in verse 8. They say to David, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. They say, We are instruments in God's hand to bring vengeance upon your enemy. We have done the Lord's work by murdering Ishbosheth. And so they come thinking that they have made life better for the kingdom of Israel, they have made life better for themselves. And they've actually done the Lord's work. But what does David do? What's David's response? Well, David condemns Banah and Rechab as cowardly murderers, not as brave men at all. And we see that in verse 9. It says, David answered Rechab and his brother Banah, the sons of Rimon the Berathite, as surely as the Lord lives who delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death In Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men, he's condemning them quite clearly, have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? David does not hold back. He clearly condemns them as wicked men, as murderers. So terrible, really, when you think about it, that they were fellow Benjamites of the house of Ishbosheth. So Ishbosheth and Saul, they're from the tribe of Benjamin. And it's very clearly given to us in uh, verse 2 who these men were and that they weren't just from another tribe within Israel, but they were part of the tribe of Benjamin and yet they murdered their own king. We see that in verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Banah and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Berathite, from the tribe of Benjamin 
And then it goes on to explain that they really were Benjamites, as you might get confused if you knew details from that day. They were clearly men who could, should be trusted by the king because they were Benjamites, but also because they were leaders in his army. They were part of his raiding band. And so what they did was exceedingly wicked in murdering people from their own, a man from their own tribe and their own king, who they swore allegiance to previously. And the way they did it was very wicked as well. They pretended to be going into the house to get something. And the man was lying on his bed having a nap. And they killed him. He never had a chance. Reminds us a bit of the incident with Abner and Joab last week. That Joab deceived Abner, come close to him, so that he could murder him. And so David clearly condemns the murder. And what does he do? He disowns from himself Benar and Brekab and their wicked actions. He doesn't want any part of what they've done. They're saying that we've done this for you, and David says, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to do with it. And how does he really show that? He orders their execution and the shaming of their bodies. We see that in verse 12. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. He wanted everybody to see, this is what happens to murderers in my kingdom, to those who would kill an innocent man lying on his bed. And he wants their bodies displayed at the pool in Hebron. Why? Because a place of water is where everybody goes. It's a busy place. We take for granted that we can turn a tap on in our houses and water just flows to us. If you understand anything about history, places, wells, pools, they were places that were very busy places because where there's water, there is life. And so they, Jesus wanted people to come, uh, sorry, David wanted people to come to the pool in Hebron and see what he does to murderers and particularly to these men who were claiming to do something favourable for him. So what can we learn from this passage this morning, this part of Israelite history? Well, we can learn that humanity often behaves just like Ishbosheth and Israel today as well. How so? Well, when people think they will experience pain, what happens? They become afraid. They become terrified. Why? Because they're not sure who will protect them from the pain that is coming. If they know that they've got a protector, they're not as afraid. But if a protector is removed and they're fairly certain that pain is coming, fear wells up within the heart. And what does that then lead some people to do? Lead some people to behave like Banah and Rechab and harm others. Why? So that their actions in the harming somebody else will make life better for others, that pain will be removed, and particularly for themselves. They can alleviate the pain if they bring harm to somebody else. And they may even think that by doing that, by bringing harm to somebody else, they're actually doing the Lord's work. They're actually serving King Jesus by hurting somebody in order to alleviate pain from the life of others and from their life of themselves. Do people still do this today? Do people murder in order to save themselves from pain? In their fear of man and the pain that may bring to them, do they murder others? And do they even do it for God's sake? Well, it's not as often as other sins that people may commit, but it can happen. I mean, Jesus warned in John chapter 16, verse 1, he told his disciples, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Jesus warned that some days 
In the future, people will murder Christians as an act of service to God. But murder isn't as common for us. But what is a sin that people do commit out of fear of man and to try and alleviate the pain? Well, anger is a common example for us. Why do people get angry? Why do people get angry? It's often fear of man. Fear of man and the pain that people will cause them. Why does a manager fire an employee in anger for an honest mistake? Why does a manager get very upset with an employee who made an honest mistake and fire him? It's because he's worried about monetary pain that is coming. Monetary pain that is coming to him, monetary pain that may be coming to the whole company. And so he gets angry and he fires that employee. And he may even think that he's doing God's work by punishing an injustice. This person made a mistake, and what does God think of when people make mistakes? He punishes. And so I am God's instrument, and I will fire this employee so he learns that you can't make mistakes. And he does that in anger. He harms others in order to alleviate the pain that he's worried about, and even he thinks that he can satisfy God's justice. What's another example that may not be, that may be even more common? Well, an example is lying to others. Why do we lie to others? Often it's because of fear of man, fear of pain that will come upon us if people hear the truth, and pain that may come to others if the truth is told. Whereas it's far better just to lie so that harm doesn't come to me and harm doesn't come to those around me. What's an obvious example of lying in this way, serious lying in this way? An example would be when a church leadership covers up a pastor's sexual sin. This has happened again and again in church history, that a church leadership will cover up a pastor's sexual sin. Why do people do it? Why would elders of a church cover up a pastor's sin? Why would deacons cover up that sin? Well, they fear the psychological pain of themselves if it is exposed And then, of course, for the people, they fear that everybody will get really upset. It'll be really sad for them. It's just better if they don't know about what the pastor has done. We'll cover it up. And what might they think as well? We're saving the kingdom of Jesus. We're saving the king's kingdom by keeping it quiet so that people are not going to turn away from the church, leave the church, and so that the pastor... He has his faults, but he's a great preacher. And he can keep on preaching. We can continue having him up there on the platform each Sunday and he can preach the gospel and people are getting saved under him despite what he's doing behind closed doors. And so they cover it up and they lie about it. This has happened again and again in church history. People think that by lying, they will prevent pain from a whole church and prevent the king experiencing shame and that the kingdom of God can go forward and advance. They're actually doing it in service to God. But what does the king think? When we think that the ends justify the means, what does the king think of that? What does Christ the king think? Well, Jesus does to us what David did to Banar and Rechab. And what was that? He recognises our work as cowardice, not bravery, in sinning, in choosing to sin in order to avoid pain, he recognises it as cowardice. And he disowns us. He doesn't want anything to do with us if we think that sinning is the right way to go about when we're scared of the pain that can come 
to us from others. And what does he do? He orders punishment. He orders punishment and public shame. When? Now, often, he will bring about public shame for the sin that we have done. It may eventually catch up with us in this life, but ultimately for eternity in hell. That's what the king does to those who sin. Those who commit murder, those who break his law of getting angry, those who break his law about the truth and lie. He condemns it. No matter how good the intentions were, he cares about the means as well as the ends. And he condemns the means if they're contrary to his word. And we see this in in Scripture very clearly from uh, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7. Turn with me now to page 961. Page 961. Matthew chapter 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, page 961. And we'll read from verse 21. Verse 21, a similar passage was in Luke's Gospel, uh, which we had read for us before. But this is very clearly teaching this. In verse 21, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These people are like Banar and Rechab coming to David and saying, look what we've done for you. And what does Jesus say to them? Away from me, you evildoers. I don't care what you've done about prophesying and doing miracles and casting out demons. I care about the fact that you committed evil and thought it was no problem. Just like David condemned Banar and Rechab so many years ago. And what will happen to such people on that day? Well, we can read the illustration that's given in the next verses. Read from verse 24. Verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Those who hear God's word, hear his laws, and then do not put them into practice are like people building a house upon sand. And what happens when the wind comes? It falls with a crash. And so we should be afraid of pain. It's good to be afraid of pain. But when we're afraid of the, when we have fear of man and the pain that people will bring, that leads us to think that sin would be a good option, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to have a greater fear. And what is that fear? Fear of God. It's one thing to fear man, it's a whole other thing to fear God. Why? Because the pain of man is nothing compared to the pain Christ will bring if we disobey him. And we should all have this fear. We should all be afraid of God and the pain that should come. Why? Why all of us? Because we've all gotten angry. We've all lied. Even with the best of intentions, we thought it will be better for everyone if I lie. It's better for everyone if I get angry. It's better for everyone if I sin in this particular way. We're all guilty. 
of building a house upon sand rather than upon the rock. We've ignored the king's command and we have disobeyed him. And so therefore the crash is coming to all mankind and it will be eternally painful and shameful. So how can we escape the pain and the shame that we deserve for building a house upon the sand? Well, it's by doing what Jesus says to do in light of our sin. When we're conscious of our sin, what does Jesus say? He tells us to trust in him, to trust in the king. Why Jesus? Well, Jesus did something wonderful for believers. For those who trust in him, what did Jesus do? He chose to be treated as Banar and Rechab were treated by David. How was that? They were executed and publicly shamed. And that's what Jesus did for those who trust in him. Jesus was willing to be condemned in our place. He was willing to become sin for us, become our lies, become our anger, become all the times that we've broken God's law and therefore be disowned by the Father, by the King of Kings, treated as a criminal and take the punishment of hell that we deserve upon his shoulders at the cross. Jesus was willing to be publicly shamed, to be hung up like Banar and Rechab were hung up so many years earlier, hung up as an example of what happens to sinners. And why did he do that? So that the sins that we've committed could be forgiven and that we could go free and never be publicly shamed in the way that we deserve to be in hell that our sins could be forgiven. Is this true? That we who have trusted in Jesus can be forgiven? It is true. Despite the fact that we have hands stained with blood, just like Rechab and Benar did so many years ago. It is so wonderful to know that even as we've come to God in the past and had hands stained with blood, as we've offered prayers to him, he now forgives us. This is the wonderful truth that is taught for us in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, he says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. What's Isaiah saying? Well, what's God saying through Isaiah? You have hands stained with blood as you hold them up in prayer. And that's what we've done so often in the past. We've tried to come to God saying, I'm doing your will, but our hands are stained with blood. But what does it now say in verse 18 of Isaiah 1? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Wonderful truth that if we come to God and admit that we've sinned against him, that we have not done the Lord's work, that we've been doing our own work and our hands are stained with blood, he washes us with the precious blood of Christ Jesus who was condemned on our behalf if we trust in him. So if you've never done it before, I encourage you to do so. Trust in Christ Jesus. Come to the king now and say, I have not been doing your work, I've been doing my own work. And ask for forgiveness. And if you truly come, he will forgive and wash away your sins and your hands will no longer be stained with blood when you come to him in prayer. 
And if you have trusted in Jesus and been forgiven, what should we do? Well, we should resist the temptation to sin. We should resist the temptation to sin. How? Well, one way from the text is by not being fearful and alarmed of temporary pain. Not being fearful of men. How? Well, it's the same way that we deal with our sin originally. The way we resist sin and temptation to sin is the same way. And what is that? It's by trusting in Jesus. That's how we have our sins forgiven in the first place. How do we then resist sin? It's by trusting in Christ Jesus, trusting in the King. How will Jesus deal with our temptation? How will he help us to deal with whatever pain is coming our way? Because that's what causes us to sin so often. We're worried about pain that will come into our lives. How does Jesus help us? Well, there's many ways that he does. He can give us a righteous way out. We don't need to sin to avoid pain. He can show us a way to do the right thing and avoid pain. He may show us that our fears are unfounded and so therefore we do not need to sin in order to escape the pain because the pain's not coming at all. That's what Banar and Rechab should have done. They should have found out more information. David wasn't hostile to Ishbosheth. If they'd found that out, they wouldn't have committed the grisly murder and therefore been executed. And Jesus can do the same with us. He can show us that we're not, we shouldn't be afraid at all, that it's all in our mind. How else does Jesus help? He may stop the pain from coming at all. As we pray to him and ask for help, he may stop the pain that we deserve. And of course, how else can he help? He can give us the endurance by the power of the Holy Spirit to endure the pain that comes to us. Whatever pain is coming to us, he can actually give us the strength to endure it righteously, not sin to avoid it, but righteously endure it. And if we look to Jesus and trust in him, what does he ultimately do? He ends all pain one day for us. How does he do that? By taking us to heaven. It's this wonderful truth that we understand that in about 80 years, all of us will have all temporary pain in this world ended. In about 80 years, none of us will be here. And if we're believers in Jesus Christ, there will no longer be any pain or suffering for any of us in this room because Jesus, the one we look to, the one we trust, will have ended it all. Now, you may say it's easy for Jesus to say, look to me, trust me, the pain will be short-lived. He doesn't know about the pain that I'm going through. Well, that's not true. He knows about your pain And he knows about pain in this world infinitely more than all of us. Why? Because Christ suffered worse pain than we will ever suffer in this world. And where did he experience that? On this earth and particularly at the cross. And what did Jesus do? He didn't disobey God's will and say, I can avoid the cross if I sin and it'll be better for me and better for everyone ultimately. No, he endured the pain as the joy that was set before him to do the right thing, to follow God's will despite the pain that would come because he knew that it would give joy to the Father, it gave joy to him to endure that pain and it would give joy to so many more if he endured the pain of the cross. And so let us be people who trust in Jesus to deal with the pain so that we're not afraid of man and therefore we're not afraid of pain. And so therefore we do not sin so much. We will sin a lot less if we don't get so scared of pain. Yes, pain has a good role in our life as well. When you touch something hot, pull back your hand. It's a good thing to do. But there is a lot of pain that we're afraid of and we sin to avoid it. But if we do not fear the pain because we trust in Jesus, then we're not going to sin. 
We're not going to be angry. We're not going to lie in order to save us. Instead, we'll look to Jesus to save us by the power of the Holy Spirit and so that we'll joyfully rest in him. We'll sing songs joyfully like the one we're going to sing, Take Time to Be Holy, which in the verse 3 says, Take time to be holy, let him be thy guide, and run not before him whatever betide, in joy or in sorrow, still follow thy Lord, and looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. We will sing this joyfully because we know that the Lord will help us with the pain, because we know that sinning to avoid pain is a lie. Fear fear tells us that if we sin, we can avoid pain. But we know it's a lie because it actually brings greater pain from God himself. It brings the king's wrath. Whereas we know that there is joy in righteousness, even as we suffer for it. Even as we suffer for doing the right thing, we know that there's a joy there. So let us all not be like Ishbosheth and Israel and Banar and Rechab from so many years ago who got terrified at the news of pain that could be coming. Let us instead live righteous and joyous lives, trusting in Jesus to end our pain. And let us thank Jesus every day that he did not disobey God in order to avoid pain. But he considered it a joy set before him to endure pain in order to keep God's righteous laws. Let's come before him in prayer now. Let's speak with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you, for you do not let the guilty go unpunished. Despite their circumstances and their intentions, which they may say led them to sin, you do not let them go unpunished, like David did so many years ago with Rechab and Banar. But Lord, we must confess that we have often sinned, because we were afraid of man and the pain that we might suffer. But Lord, we thank you for suffering the condemnation, the punishment, the shame that we who believe deserve for our sin. And Lord, we ask that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to keep trusting in you so that we do not fear pain and do not sin, but joyfully do what is right, even if it causes us to suffer temporarily in this world. And Lord, if there is anyone here in this place who is still fearful of man, still fearful, fearful of what pain can be brought upon them, and so they're continuing in their sin, oh Lord, we pray that they would fear you and your wrath and the pain that you will bring for those who disobey your ways, that the crash is coming for their house. Lord, we pray that they would fear that and then trust in you for the forgiveness of sins so that they endure for eternity. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.